Hello, everyone. My name is Reese Lindmark, and you're listening to Gray Mirror, a podcast from MIT Media Lab's Digital Currency Initiative on technology, society, and ethics. And unlike something like Black Mirror, which just looks at the negative impacts of technology on society, we are Gray Mirror, so we look at the positive and negative impacts of technology on society. And please, if you have any feedback, reach out on Twitter. And if you like the show, give us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast app. Uh, we really do appreciate it. Thanks. So today I interview Rob Reich. Rob is a fascinating political science professor at Stanford. We chat about three big things, his recent book, Just Giving, why he stepped down from the board of GiveWell, and the new AI ethics center at Stanford that he's co-leading. And so a couple quick notes here. The first is around his book, Just Giving, which gives this you know, political institutional view on philanthropy instead of the traditional individual moral view, something like effective altruism. And given this, it's kind of like this analysis of civil society and institutional co-evolution and less like the personal morality piece. I think it's a very crucial perspective. Um, and, and we chat within that framework, we chat a lot about the kind of economic and institutional framings here, you know, private goods versus public goods. And we especially dive into club goods, which are these non-rivalrous but exclusive goods, so something like a church. Uh, you can think of it as something that is like not a public benefit corporation, not a private corporation, but a mutual benefit corporation. And so when we think about this world, uh, Rob puts his correct perspective here, which says, hey, we want to create club goods that have positive externalities. And in fact, I think that that is a crucial way to imagine our future, and our future civil society is one in which we're creating lots and lots of different club goods that have positive externalities that then, from the kind of system view, that emergent behavior, given those constraints of needing to have positive externalities, it all works out. (laughs) What I mean by that is, instead of trying to design things from a top-down way, you can design things from a bottom-up way through club goods but those club goods have positive externalities. So that's that's the first note here. The second is we chat about uh, effective altruism and GiveWell. And as GiveWell moves more towards political work, Rob emphasized, hey, this could get kind of plutocratic, um, where, you know, the classic example, something like Bill Gates um, flexing uh, on the political system, that's going to happen more and more with effective altruism. And so uh, the question here is, you know, how will effective altruist folks have this meta conversation about plutocracy in civil society? So that's the second point. Uh, and then the third is on this new center of you know the human-centered artificial intelligence, this new Stanford AI Ethics Center. It's I think that Rob is making this very interesting point. This a bet, um, and his bet is that you have you know a lot of brain drain right now from academia to companies because companies have much more data and pay more money and everything's a win essentially but when you when those people start to realize that in fact what they're optimizing for is not necessarily money but rather something like meaning that then they start to say you know i don't want to just work on ads or making people click on more things in the newsfeed instead maybe i want to work on something that looks closer to you know that you know ai safety or you know fairness and accountability and transparency or whatever and so i think that you know the human-centered artificial intelligence center at Stanford is really making what I think is a smart bet, and similar to the one that MIT is making, that's saying, hey, if you want to be a future AI person or, or technologist, you can instead work with lots of cool ethicists and social social scientists and philosophers in academia with these better incentives, and it's going to be better for you because even though you might not make as much money, you're going to have more learning, more meaning, more impact, and the correct incentive set around you that's not necessarily company-based. So, yeah, I think that's a, a fascinating bet and one that I hope plays out, I guess. Um, so with that, hope you enjoy today's episode with Rob. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Gray Mirror. Today, I'm really excited to view Rob Reich. Uh, and we're actually here in person, which is always fun. Uh, and so Rob is a professor of political science at Stanford University. He's the director of the Center for Ethics in Society and a faculty co-director at both the Center on Philanthropy and Civil Society and Stanford's new Center for Human-Centered Artificial Intelligence. That's a lot, but it's, a lot. Uh, <laughs> it's juicy. Um, and he also recently published a book on philanthropy called Just Giving. So Rob, thanks for being on the show. It's welcome. really great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I think it'll be fun. Um, so... 
there's kind of three big buckets that we'll chat about. Uh, one is the book, Just Giving, and then we're also going to chat about effective altruism and give well, and you just left that board recently, so we'll yep. discuss that. And then finally, we're going to chat about the new Stanford Center for you know AI Ethics Center. Super. Um, so starting with Just Giving, could you give us kind of an overview on what the thesis of the book is? Yeah, the, the basic idea is that to the extent that philosophers have written about philanthropy or charity, um, it's been in a pretty exclusive Peter Singer moral philosophy mode, um, kind of moral guidance to individuals about what they're morally obligated or recommended to do, how much money they should give away, to whom they should give it, under what circumstances they should give it, uh, and uh, the kind of Singer effective altruism strain of this. Um, if people are familiar with it, you know, recommend giving large quantities of money if you have it. You know, the demand on you is quite high, morally speaking, and for a particular cause, namely um, trying to target uh, desperately badly off people. And I wanted to take a different philosophical approach, that of a political philosopher rather than a moral philosopher, because the starting point of my book is that the impulse of human beings to give money or time away for some other regarding altruistic purpose is universal. We can find evidence of it in every society. And what shapes the philanthropic impulse is the set of social norms and public policies in any society. So in the United States, we have a whole array of laws that give shape to our particular philanthropic or charitable sector. Things that begin with private property, um, various forms of taxation, various liberties about what you can do with your private property, to more specific things like declaring that a certain class of organizations shall be known as 501c3 public <laughs> charities. Those organizations shall be eligible for tax-deductible giving. Um, there should be a separate class of organizations we'll call private foundations or community foundations or donor-advised funds. All of these are basically philanthropic corporate vehicles or forms that are just ordinary creatures of the law. And they give shape to the sector. They stand in need of justification from a philosophical standpoint. And it includes for philanthropy some especially peculiar legal permissions, in my view, things like um, creating a charitable entity or philanthropic entity, say a private foundation or charitable trust, that is legally designed to live in perpetuity. And that's meant to protect the donor's intent forever beyond the grave. <laughs> These are, seems on the surface, kind of strange things. What would make those justifiable in a liberal democratic setting. So the point of view is to examine the full array of charitable and philanthropic practice from the standpoint of a democratic setting and to see what types of policies and social norms ought to be recommended. Yeah, I love it. I think it... Uh and I think your, your crucial point there is this this world of effective altruism is very powerful. It's a powerful mindset. It's like, hey, you should you know probably donate more and like probably yeah. donate to more effective things. That makes sense. But then what they miss to in, in great extent, um, I think you and I believe, is that this what I usually call like institutional co-evolution yes. or what you call this political theory of, of philanthropy. And it's like that's important too. How should civil society co-evolve with the state? Right. These these and I like what you call it, the creatures of the law. Yeah. There are these things where norms and things get embedded in society or norms get embedded into laws which get embedded in society and those rise to the level of institutions and before you know it you have these massive you know philanthropic foundations that have been around for a long time that yeah. you know um, yeah. that you create the intent exactly let me try out a different thing on you this is a bit of yeah. a cartoon um, analogy or caricature <laughs> but I think it does capture something um, about effective altruists and I want to you know, declare right at the start having served on the board of GiveWell obviously I'm sympathetic to their point of view there's lots of room in the world for more people who are oriented by an effective altruist yeah. framework yeah. Um, but there's something peculiar about the I don't even call it an anti-politics, but it's mm -hmm. a it's an it's an indifference to politics, or as you put it, the institutional co-evolution mm -hmm. of social norms, that is sociologically peculiar, mm -hmm. and you know even more dramatically kind of irresponsible in a sort of way. And you know, here's my character of an EA, someone who thinks like um, if we can convince people to donate more of their time, more of their money, like possibly their kidney, <laughs> to desperately needy people, 
Um, it's like having a kind of util fire hose that you just like go out and find the desperately badly off folks and spray your utility on them. And you say, look, you're better off. You're better off. What's to complain about? This is an incredible orientation. We just like spray the world with utility and make people better. And if it's as simple as that, that would be great. But that interacts with politics and institutions. And you got to understand what the interaction is, else you'll be missing a good part of the story. Yes, totally. And I think in and in one note, and I agree with you that both you and I are very sympathetic to that view. You know, I self-tax myself twenty percent of my wealth or, yep. wealth or whatever, um, or my income. I think that the, and, and you can see. And one other thing on effective vulture, it's been it's only been ten ish years, depending yep. on how you count. So they're kind of before it was like more earning to give, and now yes. they're kind of moving in this direction that we're chatting about, which I think is is good. At least they're they're very good at updating. You yes, know, that's, indeed, that's true. Yes. <laughs> they love that. Uh, so I mean. Kind of pulling away from effective altruism specifically and thinking more about this political theory of philanthropy, yeah. how, I mean, at a macro level, how do you think, I mean, we have all these weird kind of um, versions of, of norms and laws in society in, in America today. Um, how do you think in general in the future now or in the next you know, 20 years, how should philanthropy or like civil society co-evolve with the state? Yeah, Um that's a great question, and I think the right way to approach it is not to think that you can get a theory up and running of civil society on its own. Mm. I think you need to start from the landscape of a liberal democratic setting. Now, of course, you need to back up and defend why it is that a liberal democratic setting relative to some alternative political regime is the right one. But, I mean, for this conversation, let's just assume that we all share some priors about a commitment to liberal democracy. I will accept. <laughs> okay, so if you've got that up and running, then the question about civil society is to try to understand what role a flourishing civil society plays in support of a democratic society. And I don't have a particularly novel story to tell there. It's a kind of familiar... Tocquevillian contestatory arena in which the voluntary um, kind of activity of, of individuals that sits outside the realm of the family um, um, and beneath the level of the state uh, provides a kind of pluralistic, diverse, and, and um, contestatory arena for people to affiliate, associate, and express themselves to pursue their various projects and that then in this arena, things kind of filter up. It's an arena for deliberation and dialogue. And then sometimes things filter up to the level of the state and formal politics. And then beneath the state and civil society, you get this different arena. And then within that, there's this other peculiar group of organizations that we'll call foundations in the United States. And then there's a separate analysis in my book about exactly the role that they are meant to play. Because the starting point of you know how I think we ought to think about big giving even if it's outside the realm of a foundation, to be clear here, you know, the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative is not a foundation, it's an LLC, so that counts, in my view, as the yeah. kind of big philanthropy. But the basic idea is that big philanthropy is, by definition, the attempt of wealthy people to direct their private assets for some public influence, and in a democratic setting, that amounts to an exercise of power. And anywhere in a democracy, power deserves scrutiny, not automatic gratitude. Mm -hmm. And I think... What we have as an obligation as citizens is to scrutinize the power of philanthropists in order to be sure that that power supports democratic ideals rather than subverts them. Yep. Yeah, I think that's powerful. And the, as you say, you, yeah, what is the end that we're going for? And as you, the end is you know, some kind of liberal democratic society. And then within that, um, then yeah, in, in between the, the state and the family, there's what should the civil society look like? It should uh, it should try to support those ends. And I think in your book you do this great you know balance between liberty and equality, and say right. like to some extent that's what we're chatting about here, which is like, hey, if you're a random person who made a good amount of money. Yes, you should be able to give a lot of it, but I mean, you can't just like you know maybe you shouldn't get tax deductions right. for everything because that might right. you know balance versus equality and and there's a lot of for our listeners we won't go too deep into it today but there's a lot of cool analysis that that Rob does um, in the book about you know which which specific aspects of specific um, you know tax deductions or whatever lead right. to which uh, outcomes but um, I want to chat about one specific thing here which is 
Um, so thinking about an awkward piece here, in my opinion, is is this idea of you got private goods and then public goods. Yeah. And private goods are nice because it's just like I buy the food, I eat the food. Yeah. <laughs> yep. That's cool. The market does that. Public goods in some ways are simple to some extent where the state says great national defense for everybody. Yeah. Um, and then you have this awkward new ground of club goods yeah. um, where there are these things that are non-rivalrous, but they're excludable. Right. And, and so only people in the club can do them. And I think that the awkward piece here is that like for me, when I think about my own giving, part of my own giving is wanting to give to things that eventually loop back around to me from a value perspective. So right. if I like give to my community, maybe my community gets better. Like I have right. like there's a fun block party eventually that you know I. Right. Um, so how do you think? In your book, you chat about like the incentives, the like the, the tax, um, you know, charitable tax deduction right. and subsidy, and I think that. And in, in that, you do this analysis of how people give and receive value. Yeah. So how should we think about, you know, giving and receiving value to and from civil society? Yeah. I don't, yeah. Yeah, right. I mean, that's exactly the rich set of questions that I think a political theory of philanthropy has to address. Yeah. So, I mean, I'll touch on a bunch of the stuff you said and, and you know, love to hear your views about this, too. So I do think you've identified this intermediary class of goods, club goods, yeah. which are in certain respects um, other regarding because you're trying to do something in, collect, in a collectivity yeah. with other people, but that aren't classic public goods. And um, they, as, as, a, as a consequence, bring about some, some benefit. And, and furthermore, I think there are certain types of club goods that even have positive externalities that redound to the benefit of everyone. Um, so let me, let's give a couple examples, not make this so abstract. Uh, one of the things which I was surprised to find out when I started researching this book was that the largest recipient of charitable dollars in the United States, if you look across the kind of different types of giving to health or education or the environment or whatever, the largest uh, recipient is religion. Yeah. And um, it's not the faith-based social services here, the Salvation Armies of the World mm-hmm. or the Mercy Corps of the World, but rather just you know the Sunday basket contribution or the support for the synagogue, the mosque. And those seem to me to be a version of a club good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, they, you know, th- there are some ancillary ex- benefits or externalities from church attendance. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we ask sociologists or political scientists you know, where social capital is built, they often yeah. will point to congregational um, um, activities. Yeah. Um, but, for example, that's also true about joining equinox or like you know a gym Mm -hmm. um it's better for the polity that people are relatively healthy and that you know redounds to our collective benefit because we don't have to pay for the health care costs of people who are um unhealthy but no one stops for a moment to think that the gym membership should be a charitable contribution because of these externalities but that's kind of what we do with church contributions and I mean, at a minimum, my analysis suggests that we can recognize and should recognize the positive externalities of, of, of you know, giving to a church, but that we shouldn't um, provide tax incentives for those contributions. Um, we might keep the church a tax-exempt organizational entity. Yeah. But we don't need to give donors to the church tax deductions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there might be some middle ground there. Yeah. And I'll add one other reason for that. Yeah. Um, one relevant question, not a philosophical question, but an empirical question, is what effect on giving does a tax incentive have? And the basic starting point for an economist would be to say, well, the incentive had better be kicking out more money out of someone's back pocket than they would give without the incentive. Yeah. Otherwise, you're just you know, reducing tax revenue yeah for no effect in, in, in the world. And the kind of giving that is least sensitive to, an, to a tax deduction is religious giving, because mm-hmm. many people internalize that as a moral norm. And almost no one is doing, let's be very clear, an effective altruist <laughs> analysis of their, of their congregation. Well, you know, that, that, you know, the Episcopalians across town are, are like unbelievable. <laughs> on, yeah, yeah. Um, and I better go hang out over there. Like that's a non-starter as an analysis for even the most rigorous effective altruist, I would say. Yes, yeah. So um, it's really hard to get up and running a rationale, in my view, for tax deductible giving to a church. Yep, yep, yep. That's interesting. I think that um, there is so a couple notes here. One is, as you say, 
the, the, the space of richly textured questions here, I think maybe, I would honestly say maybe 5% of your book is questions, which is interesting. Yeah. I think yeah. I like that. Yeah. I think that's yeah. good. And I think, and, and, and as I were thinking generally about building a field of cryptocurrency and crypto ethics and stuff, and, and part of that is you set the ground right. for this delicious new field, but then the, the grounds upon which it is created, they emerge all these other questions that yeah. other people can, so if you're interested in political theory of philanthropy, there's lots of unanswered questions here. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I say in the beginning of the book, um, I think I will have been successful in this book if, um, at the very least, you accept that there are powerful and important questions to be asked within yeah. this framework, yeah. this political theory framework, yeah. and you can reject every one of my substantive conclusions. <laughs> totally, um, totally. But it will be good just to have way more work on this topic because there's so little of it right yeah. now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I think, uh, as you say, I think... I think that the framing of club goods with positive externalities is likely the best framing yep. for, for under you know um, bottom up community kind yep. of stuff. Yep. Uh, I think that's probably correct. I think there's another awkward thing here with club goods as well, which is that um, you have the internet is kind of full of club goods in yep. the sense that uh, everything is uh, non rivalrous yep. and that everything is bits. Yep. Um, and so you can the marginal cost is zero, but um, you can exclude people by saying no, this is software as a service, right. you must pay. Right. I feel like there's an awkward thing there. Like we're talking about club goods that are both your church and your local community things and the big tech things. Yes. Should, is there is there any overlap there? Yeah, yeah. So I mean, you, you noted in the introduction that I'm part of this uh, research effort at Stanford called the Digital Civil Society Lab, and these are the sorts of questions that we're asking there to try to understand exactly how, um, you know, uh, using um, either the 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 inherent capacities of digital technologies, um, whether or not you're within the corporate form of a for-profit or a non-profit or something else, opens up a world of new possibilities that you didn't have before. Or alternatively, whether or not something about the corporate form is really important um, to marry it onto this. And I'll just give you one example that comes to mind for me because I feel like this is um, a kind of easy one to see exactly what you had in mind. So take... Um, the set of norms around uh, um, donation of art and artwork. Um, the typical thing is it's actual physical thing. It's a it's a unique piece of work, and you know someone possesses it as a form of property, and then they donate it to a museum or they have it as private art, and it's you know treated in whatever the way is private or a, a you know public thing it, it is. But then imagine you have digital photography in which it's trivially easy yeah. to make multiple copies of something at exactly what you described, at yeah. zero marginal cost. Yeah, that's awkward. Now, do you assign an IP right to it, even though you might decide to distribute it in multiple forms? And you know what I learned in this initial exploration of this is that if you go look at digital artwork, a digital you know, photograph in a gallery that's for sale, um, when you purchase it, you get a certificate that says this is a unique one-off piece of work. Yeah. And then you ask questions like, you mean the, yeah. the photographer doesn't retain the, like, the digital copy? Really? Um, but so the, the, the old the analog norms have just been papered over onto digital art yeah. in a way which has absolutely zero to do with the technological capacity. Yeah. Yeah. And we ought to be exploring what the technological capacities open up as a new set of possibilities for precisely the reasons that you began with. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with that. And there's, there's some interesting things in the cryptocurrency. How much do you know about the cryptocurrency? No, a little bit, not, not much. much. You know way this, more than the, I do. This, yeah. this world has, um, there's a thing called a non-fungible token, which yep. is um, money is generally fungible. They equal, my dollar equals your dollar. Uh, Bitcoins are usually fungible. My Bitcoin equals your yep. Bitcoin. But these non-fungible tokens can represent uh, their, their unique uh, tokens. So yep. so mine is not the same as yours. Yep. And so these can, rep people are exploring representing art as these. Uh, I see, a digital it. twin, yeah. um, the, yep. the, the, these NFTs. So so that's an exploration space that yeah. might happen. Um, so uh, maybe one or two other questions on, on, on just giving. So yeah. do you think that – so one thing that I think is awkward – or well, I could see it as possibly awkward is there's – so this effective altruist – so at the end of the book, what you do is you say – you talk about um, the role that uh, philanthropic foundations can play. And yeah. You're like, hey, they could be good at you know discovering new things and at, like right. you know perhaps this like long-term intergenerational right. justice. Yep. Um, and, and there's this this word that you use there, presentism, yes. uh, which I think is powerful. And I think there's an awkward thing here where you have I think both you and I agree with uh, we both agree with a lot of things in effective altruism and disagree and like yeah. want to. We both agree with a lot of things in, like social justice activism, but also yeah. disagree with some things. So I think this word of of presentism and intergenerational justice. I think that this. 
my instinct is that these might be like if you think about presentism compared to like racism or sexism yes. or whatever yes. like these as like maybe powerful effective or like justice like social justice versus intergenerational yes. justice yes there's something here about how effective altruists might be able to use these words in the same language that social justice activism use it, but there's it's yeah. sketchy territory. Yeah, perhaps. no, I think you're onto something. So um, just to make sure anyone who's listening understands this idea of presentism, at least yeah. as I use it in the book, yeah. the idea is that it, um, by design, not as a bug, but as a feature, the creation of democratic institutions um, harness decision-making to short time horizons. And the typical mechanism is that there are elections. So that if you're someone in a public agency or an actual representative, and you say to citizens or your constituents, look, we're going to spend a whole bunch of public money on an experimental project that we don't know if it will have any effect whatsoever, and it'll take 20 years for us to find out. (laughs) That's not a recipe for winning the next election. And um, that presentism is, I say, built in by design. So um, from my point of view, there the important project of a democratic society is that it has to be successful at solving social problems as conditions change over time. And there are various governmental mechanisms for social problem solving. Those have these presentist biases built in. And um, a democratic society should look for some extra governmental mechanisms, especially those that will have these long time horizons. And that's the justification I see for philanthropy. Now, you were asking about how this works with you know, presentism and long time horizons and justice and intergenerational justice. So think about the evolution of GiveWell, which I partly um, you know, witnessed from the standpoint of the board. One of the longstanding critiques of GiveWell give or effective altruism in its early form was that it's an inherently conservative or, or short time horizon approach. Basically, here's a whole bunch of really rigorous analyses to show you if you make a contribution tomorrow, here's the predictable maximal impact you can have on human welfare next week, next month, next year. And um, it doesn't allow you to think about innovation or creation of new entities. It's only analyzing what exists in the world, and that's the built-in conservatism. But then within GiveWell, they recognized that this basic orientation to trying to maximize impact had nothing necessarily connected to short time horizons. Mm -hmm. You could take a longer time horizon view and just get up and running a kind of expected value approach to something that it's less confidence it'll happen, but if it were to happen, it would have these enormous benefits. And so that was initially the Open Philanthropy Project created as an, you know, a kind of um, uh, experimental project within GiveWell and then spun out altogether. And now that's um, up, and, up and running on its own. And I think Open Philanthropy takes a longer time horizon, but with the same sort of philosophical approach. How long should the time horizon be? I think that's a robust debate within the <laughs> EA community or within a political theory of philanthropy. That's the project of the last two chapters of the book. And, you know, I think... The way that anyone who's an effective altruist should come to grapple with grapple with this is to ask themselves whether or not the kinds of things that you know bubbled up a couple of years ago, the EA communities and Nick Bostrom and others would say that um, as long as we're counting out across generations and we ask ourselves about various existential threats to humanity, such that future generations might not exist at all, um, then we should be giving all of our money and time to staving off existential threats to humanity such that, and here was the line that you know stuck with me and should bother anybody, mm-hmm. current global poverty is nothing more than a rounding error yeah. in that analysis. Uh, okay. Well, there's <laughs> hot a, take. It's a hot yeah. take. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think that's an internal tension within a particular type of effective altruist approach. Yeah. What reasons do you have to care for future generations? Because even if you set the discount value for future, future generations at a very high rate, yeah. if you're extending out thousands of yeah. generations, yeah. it's still going to swamp the value of currently poor people. Yeah. So, good luck, EA, solving that one. Yeah, exactly. yeah, and as and I think that the nice, the hopeful, nice thing with all these is that there's definitely no right answer there. You right. know, it's like it's it's impossible to say. Well, how? Yeah, an animal. You get all into exactly. all these things, and, it's, and there's no right answer. Um, it, but it is good to be able to know both of those sides of it. So let's, let's dive in a little bit more to GiveWell. And, and as as Rob said, I think so. GiveWell, I kind of imagine it as it's one of these EA meta charities. Um, right. They do they kind of create a market for impact in the their specific market for impact is in, you know, human, you know, global health and development. Right. Um, and 
I think that what I'd like to chat about first is is specifically around. So I know you've been on the board for a while, yep. um, five plus years, um, yep. and and you just left recently. You know, yep. last month, um, and. Uh, you said that you know you left because a you just think it's good to have some turnover. You're right. taking some other commitments, um, but also that you're kind of thinking about the long term how their board should operate and how it should be professional. So tell me a little bit more about um, you know what you think about uh, you know GiveWell and how they're currently operating, how they could upgrade their operations or whatever. Yeah. So um, what you said at the start is correct. So there were sort of personal reasons for cycling off the board that had to do with some of the commitments I had and a view about board membership itself that no one should install themselves in a board for a very long period of time. And there were also some reasons specific to give Wells um, um, orientation or attitude toward um, its own board that gave me some trouble and that I wrote about in the, this letter that's posted on GiveWell's site. So we'll talk about that latter piece. Um, you know, I think that if you understand the life cycle of an ordinary nonprofit organization, um, GiveWell is still run now 10 plus years later by one of its two original founders. And the founders sort of imprint the organizational culture in a way that's um, you know, when things go well is very important and good to have. And um, there were some decisions made recently uh, by the GiveWell leadership to shrink the size of the board from what, in my view, was already a relatively small small like board. Nine or nine seven. Nine people. Yeah. And on the one hand, GiveWell, over the course of 10 years, or the five years that I was on the board, had grown significantly. It had grown in its number of employees. And most importantly, it had grown in the amount of money it moved. So GiveWell is moving these days more than $100 million a year. Now, that's not revenue to GiveWell, the organization, of course. That's revenue that it's responsible for moving to its recommended charities. $100 million is is a significant amount of money (laughs) for a nonprofit organization. And to have what was essentially a kind of... um, an unserious board for an organization that's moving $100 million seemed to me uh, the wrong approach. And when GiveWell's leadership announced the decision to reduce the size of the board further, I had a bunch of internal conversations to register the reasons I had that I thought that was a bad idea. Um, And uh, the leadership um, um, argued back. I mean, another feature of an effective altruist is that, um, as with philosophers, there's often overconfidence (laughs) and, you know, hubris even. And um, uh, we, you know, came to an impasse, basically. And I um, felt that the direction toward a smaller board was basically failing to take the board seriously. And um, as a consequence, I also wanted to register that as a complaint and then and then left for this constellation of reasons. Let me add one more thing here. I think that I have a view now about what, um, in a healthy nonprofit organization, board membership in, you know, can involve. So, um, I mean, just to register this uh, and then to say how it works with GiveWell in my experience, being on a board of a nonprofit, you are the formal, you know, trustees or governors of the organization. You have fiduciary responsibilities to the organization's well-being. So there's the formal role of evaluating and hiring or firing the executive director. Um, no one on the board ever had any serious complaints in my time about um, Ellie or Holden, the people who, who run the run the run the place. Um, and then you do due diligence with respect to accounting and the finance, and that was always um, seemed pretty good. Um, in addition to those roles, though, you can serve as an ambassador to the external world. And you know, one of the things which I always thought was peculiar about GiveWell was that it didn't deploy the board especially effectively mm-hmm. in external roles, mm-hmm. and it kind of relied on what seemed to me serendipity for mm-hmm. Peter Singer writing a New York Times Magazine article or a book that mentioned GiveWell, mm-hmm. that would you know attract all this attention to the organization, but it wasn't ever stimulated or coordinated by the organization itself. Or to put it differently, for an organization devoted to effective altruism, it seemed to me woefully ineffective at communication about its own mission. And the board was just one potential um, lever for that, which it didn't use. And then finally, and most importantly, because being a board member gives you this fiduciary responsibility to an organization, board members can be, you know, kind of um, 
to use the language of ineffective altruists, a bit of worldview diversification yeah. for the board for the organization in a trusted sense, yeah. so that you can they can bring different points of view that, of course, the leadership isn't obligated to to listen to mm-hmm. necessarily, mm-hmm. but should welcome. Um, um, it seems to me hearing, yeah. and there were elements of that, but basically. You know, put it in the harshest possible way. I thought that Give Well's orientation to the board was that it's an, a lamentable legal requirement. And if they can hustle their way through meeting the legal obligation to have board meetings, that was a preferable use of their time. Now, that overstates the way it actually was, but there were elements of that that made me think that basically the time I was spending on it um, was not worth simply mere legal compliance. Mm-hmm. And in addition to with the shrinking of the board yeah. made me uh, decide to leave. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I think, well, a, a meta point here is that I think it's cool that you are able to, A, like forgive, and this is, you know, um, the communities that have um, the ability to give each other frank feedback are long-term yes. great. And so I think it's cool that you're able to, yeah, you wrote the letter on their site. You said, hey, this is why I left. You know, yeah. that's really cool. And they're like, yeah, let's post it transparently. That's right. And I then we can that. have this conversation. Yes. It's like, that's really right. cool. Because yes. um, when these things get bottled up, it's like, ugh, that's, that's not what you want. Um, totally agree. And, and I agree with many of your points. Think that worldview diversification is good. Think that effective altruists are under-indexed on marketing and yes. communications and, you know, should probably run some more Instagram ads or something. Um, right. And so, um, yeah, I agree with all that. I think th- so. So the other piece here, which is interesting about GiveWell, is that in some ways they, uh, as far as I can tell, kind of shifted more to your worldview in that they, they most of their research was done in this specific global health, yeah. um, existing, uh, you know, existing charities and existing, you know, programs and doing randomized control trials and whatever. Yes. And now they're saying, ooh, let's change our research. Let's get a bunch more researchers in here right. and do some of this more perhaps experimental yep. political work. What are your thoughts about that now that might be, you know, playing to the future of GiveWell? Yeah. Well, I'm super excited about that. I don't want to take any credit for that, uh, but um, I think that's a, a really important direction in which to go. And it heralds a new era for, if not effective altruists, at least the people who are part of the GiveWell community. And, and there will be a whole bunch of you know, new attempts to show that, that you can give in a way that has a longer and more experimental um, uh, approach, longer time horizon approach. Um, I should say here, the way this interacts with the stuff I've written about in Just Giving is that insofar as these longer time horizon approaches and say the work of open, the Open Philanthropy Project is just one way of thinking about this, um, it seems to me there's a surface tension that should be grappled with, which is that you're inviting what is effectively a plutocratic element into a democratic setting because there's an, a natural orientation or a necessary orientation to leverage philanthropic dollars to affect public policy mm-hmm. or global policy, whatever that amounts to. And in a democratic setting in which we have a firm commitment to political equality and where political equality is then further understood to imply, in my view, something like the equal opportunity of citizens to influence policy, mm-hmm. plutocratic inputs into that setting um, stand in some surface tension with the basic commitment to political equality. Mm-hmm. And although I think there are ways to resolve that, I think there are inadequate efforts made by philanthropists, um, including the open philanthropy people, um, to be as transparent about that surface tension as they are about a whole bunch of other stuff that they do. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I think that's a uh, it's a classic awkward thing where you're like, okay, we should allow. It doesn't make sense for individuals to support political candidates, probably. Yep. Like if I really like someone, uh, but maybe if like if you and I get together and like maybe we make a group of like we support whatever, right. we we should be able to get together. But then it's like, oh, if we are Walmart or some evil, thing, you know, yes. then it's like, oh, well, they shouldn't be able to. Correct. Um, and and this is similar with as more of these philanthropic organizations and the classic example is probably like Bill Gates at the Gates Foundation with uh, charter schools in America yes. where it's yeah. like oh no like he you know or this this foundation pushed these things in a plutocratic way um, and that is in tension with the, uh, yeah. everybody having their equal voice uh, versus something like if you just do give directly it's just like everybody yes. here ha- here's an airdrop of money exactly um, that doesn't feel as effective or no, doesn't the, affect it is the you. most anti-paternalist way in which to give yeah, yeah, yeah. you know conditionless um, <laughs> cash for you Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sounds great. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's transition to our final topic here um, in this new Stanford uh, yeah. Center for Human-Centered Artificial Intelligence, right. 
underscore the hi because um, exactly. you have the nice hyphen there, so yes. you don't have to do HC. Um, the uh, and and this is a, a theme that we've talked about on the show of. AI ethics more generally, and both actual initiatives and AI ethics theater and signaling. Yeah. And at MIT, we have our new um, kind of center for computing with you know a bunch of social justice and, and ethics themes. A school for computing. A school right? for computing. Yes, yes. Right. Sorry, I don't yeah. know the correct terminology, yeah, right. but yes, it is a new school. It's a whole yeah. new big thing. Right. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, how do you see this um, this this new Stanford initiative? And you're a relatively big part of it, as far as I understand. How do you see it um, its role? What, like, what's its goal, and how do you see its role within the rest of the ethics ecosystem? Yeah. All right, so I'll give you a couple takes on that. So first, um, the Institute is new, uh, and we had a big public launch two months ago, but we haven't yet begun what I would call the ordinary, unsexy, you know, <laughs> weekly activity of, of, of being a center. That will start, I think, in the fall. And the vision is really the vision of um, Fei-Fei Li, the, um, you know, the, the AI scientist um, um, uh, who's the co-director of the place. And her, her vision, which I completely agree with, and it's the reason mainly for my involvement is the chance to um, contribute to that vision and work with her, is that um, the frontier of artificial intelligence should not be developed by AI scientists alone, and that the role of humanists and social scientists should not be only studying the downstream effects of AI in the wild once it's you know, out in the world, but rather working together with the AI scientists, as it were, in the lab, in order that the various social and ethical and political concerns are grappled with by the very AI scientists who are, you know, the chief, chiefly responsible for pushing the frontier. So that seems to me an appealing vision. And I'll add that there's a kind of particular bet that HAI is making that I hope will pan out which involves less something to do with ethics than with computer scientists. So it's a familiar piece of knowledge for anyone um, who's tracking uh, AI that um, there is just as much, if not more, basic research on AI done by people with CS degrees who work in industry. And that has to do with the superior data um, that exists in industry, often computing power. And of course, salaries are quite different between working in university and working for a Google. <laughs> as or a we Facebook. know, yes. as we know. Yeah. Um, so there's been you know, what I think is fair to call a brain drain of the top CS talent or AI talent into industry. And so part of the bed of HAI is to say to people who are on the frontier of developing AI that if you want the possibility of hopefully we'll have something in the neighborhood of the same data capacities uh, or or, um, access and computing power, we'll try to figure that out. Um, But what a university-based institute can do that a Google or an Amazon or a Facebook can't do is say, would you like to work in tandem with some of the world's best social scientists and humanists? Um, Those people aren't very frequently hired into industry. And um, the bet is that HAI will, over the course of a bunch of years, be able to lure people back from industry into academia which we also think will be better for AI overall and its social influence because then even though there's you know, lots of money um, and people are publishing in, in open, open you know, journals, um, there's a you know, commercial interest at some um, point in the equation for whatever's going on over there, whereas that's not true within, within academia. All right, so that has to do with you know, AI talent. Now you were asking about ethics. Ooh, can I kind of yeah. pause for a second? Because I think, I think that, that is, uh, that's a very crucial piece here, which is that there is, yeah, I mean, it's a classic thing where the, the, these companies, the aggregators, they've made so much money. And, and as you say, there's all the, they have so much more data so they can get all of the yeah. um, AI excited people to them. Yep. There's this brain drain. And I agree with the the bet that you're taking or the what, it's your differentiated advantage yeah. here, which is to say, hey, we might we can't compete on that axis, you know. Yep. Like Facebook has more data than Stanford. Yep. Sorry, um, and but what we can compete on is where the social scientists and ethicists are. Exactly. And so if they're with us, you can either go and work with a bunch of other like computer nerds or whatever at, at right. Facebook, or you can work in creating this beautiful new humanized you right. know version of of technology because we have the best ethicists and social scientists. That makes sense to me. I would I would put money on that bet. Yeah. <laughs> um, so so. Um, 
that sound makes sense. And I guess within the the greater my my question specifically was you can either um, ask or respond to the ethics ecosystem or specifically the AI ethics ecosystem. Yeah, yeah. yeah let's do let's do a little bit of both. Hmm. So uh, part of what I think is interesting to me about um, you know bringing ethics into HAI or bringing ethics into AI more generally, not just at Stanford, is that there are indeed a bunch of pressing and urgent ethical dimensions of AI's development that deserve attention. But just seen from the standpoint of philosophy or you know, political ethics, um, moral philosophy, um, it remains an open question to me whether or not AI ethics will come to be seen as a field of just applied ethics. In other words, there's no novel philosophical question or exploration to be done but bringing ethical frameworks to this particular field is important, and so it's a kind of application of existing ethical knowledge and frameworks. Mm-hmm. Or mm-hmm. will there be powerful new research frontiers from the standpoint of philosophy itself mm-hmm. at this intersection? Mm-hmm. Now, my bet is that it's the latter. Mm-hmm. There are powerful new philosophical questions to be asked. But the test of that mm-hmm. is whether or not philosophers or ethicists will end up publishing papers in first-rate philosophical mm-hmm. journals yep. in order to show the philosophical community in this narrow sense, not the CS people, mm-hmm. not the AI folks, not the social scientists, but just the group of you know, the small academic community of philosophers, look at these urgent, important questions that are new that deserve more attention. Yep. So my hope is that that will pan out. Mm-hmm. Um, but that remains still to be seen. So when I talk about this, this is a feature of the Center for Ethics and Society that I, I currently direct. Mm-hmm. We have a bunch of postdoctoral fellows there. Um, we selected two this year um, who will have a joint placement with HAI and Ethics and Society. And we have se- two separate who are working with Josh Cohen, a first-rate political philosopher who now works at Apple. Mm-hmm. And Um, I describe the work of these people as doing interdisciplinary ethics rather than applied ethics. Mm -hmm. And I think that's an important distinction. And the basic point, I mean, I'm repeating myself here, I guess, is that interdisciplinary ethics is meant to suggest not a kind of unidirectional application of ethics to some other domain in which the smart people have arrived to come organize your thinking. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Um, But rather, your philosophy will get better from its own, you know, terms in intellectual engagement with social science or science or or computer science. And um, my bet is that that will indeed come to play out and we'll see a bunch of interesting papers come out in the next five years in first-rate philosophy journals that show that this is a really worthy area of inquiry. Yeah, yeah, that's fascinating. I think that there's a... um the, as you say, it's it's a question of can you just apply the existing frameworks to the tech or is there this new yeah. thing that is this co-evolution between the philosophy and the tech? And I think and it reminds me, I mean, I uh, agree with your instinct there and think that, I mean, even the tech, how tech um, changes the marginal cost of things to zero and that makes more things club goods, that's that that's interesting and yeah. that's weird. And so I think that might be a sub-example of this. Yep. Um, and I think as, and I coming from the media lab and an interdisciplinary, anti-disciplinary thing, yeah. you, you know, <laughs> yeah. I am pretty disposed to be like yes, right. yes. <laughs> I agree um, so let's ask well yeah we're pretty much out of time but let me ask one final question sure. here which is so you taught this um, tech ethics class yeah. this last uh, trimester yeah. um, and uh, I'm uh, going to teach a cryptocurrency ethics class yeah. with Joey this upcoming um, semester what uh what are the macro questions or macro framings that you think any new tech ethics kind of class should have um, and what kind of things should students learn that, yeah. that kind of thing all right, well, from a from a pedagogical point of view, I think the important point is that you we aspired to show that there was a disciplinary integration mm-hmm. by all of the faculty being present at all of the classes. It yeah. wasn't a kind of serial handoff to each other. Um, <laughs> and that the assignments that students got were coding assignments, policy memos, and philosophy papers. Mm-hmm. So you had to do all of it. Mm-hmm. And we were trying to show the overlap and engagement by um, always being present in all of the classes and engaging with each other. So that's a kind of pedagogical um, standpoint. I think there's also, speaking now as a philosopher, bringing that disciplinary orientation to the class, 
Um, my challenge was to try to understand the naive, unconsidered mindset of the 19 or 20 year old CS major and reciprocally then for my CS colleague to try to understand the naive, unconsidered mindset of the 19 or 20 year old political science or philosophy major and thereby to tailor our approach to meeting the students where they are. Mm -hmm. And having now done the class once, I will update next year that I teach this because I think I got some things right and I got some other things wrong. And um, I don't know who the students will be in your, your class or Neither do I, their yeah. majors <laughs> will be, but I think that'll be an interesting, an interesting challenge is to try to figure out um, how to engage. So I'll just give you one concrete example of this. Um, for a 19-year-old CS major at Stanford, my experience is that um, um, they're sort of um, naive utilitarians, mm -hmm. by which I mean the basic premise of, of CS is to maximize or optimize a solution to a problem. Mm -hmm. So if someone gives you an objective function or a problem to solve, and your job is to solve it um, most efficiently. And... Um, if you ask people about how they're going to resolve value trade-offs um, or under what circumstances in particular, for example, like when should a coder of an algorithm sacrifice predictive accuracy in the name of fairness or privacy or explainability and where that isn't just, well, you consult your preferences and install that into the, um, you know, the, um, you know, the, the function. Um, you know, uh, I've got to find a way to, as it were, inhabit the mental landscape of the CS person in order to engage philosophically. And uh, that, that'll that take some time for me to get better at that. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. So I think, uh, thank you for the tips. Um, and for anybody who's listening, I think those are good tips, which are trying to make it, you know, from a pedagogical perspective, naturally interdisciplinary and not just like, here's another guest speaker and this right. person's going to be the tech person. And this person's going to be the, you know, social, you know, science person. Um, that seems powerful. And as you say, I mean, this is true for all things, but especially within this weird new interdisciplinary world, it's like, when you have your students who are coming from these different perspectives, inhabit their mind and be like, okay, if you're the CS person doing objective functions, well, actually it can be a lot messier and yeah. kind of bringing you to that world and letting you agree with that world is, is tough and vice versa from the social sciences where you're like, hey, but these computer scientists, you know, there's a lot of stuff here that's, that's yeah. really, you can't just reject it, you know, outright or whatever. Um, good. So that sounds fun. Uh, so I guess for our listeners, um, A, yeah, feel free to check out Rob's book, Just Giving. There's a lot of cool other stuff in there that we didn't chat about today. Um, I guess if you're into you know ethics and, and AI stuff. Check out the the, the Stanford Center at HAI. Um, and Rob, where can people find you on like Twitter or website or whatever? I'm on Twitter at Rob Rob Reich and um, got a website and all the various centers of a website. I'm pretty easy to find as long as you don't confuse me with the former Labor Secretary. Yeah, nice, exactly. <laughs> and it's and it's R E I C H. That's right. And it's yeah. Rob, not Robert. That's exactly. how you. Yeah, exactly. that's how you know. Um, good. Well, thank you again for being on the show today, Rob. It was really great to be here. Thanks. Goodbye.